If you want to sort it out, find me. You didn't find me. You could have fought me and you didn't. If you want to find me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Let's do it outside. Your line of questioning isn't, it, it isn't uh, conducive to a good interview. Why is that? It just isn't. It's not going anywhere. You're asking me this is, it's, it's, this is... What's wrong with that line of question? It's unfair. Yeah, my problem, I spanked him. Yeah, How did he gonna be yeah, as equally talented as me? Are you serious? Yeah. As easy as I beat him? I could have beat him while playing chuckles on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you no. serious, James Tony? You never give me a fair shake. HBO needs to fire you. You don't know about boxing. You ain't So today I just wanted to start with Conor Ben. Now, if you've followed me for long enough, you know I'm a Conor Ben fan. I like Conor Ben. I like his story. I like his struggle. I like the adversity. All the stories that have followed him. Now, if you remember his first two or three fights and people said this kid is going to get smashed, they said he'd never make British level. That's what they said. No, he'll never make British level. You know, okay. But I understood what they were doing with Conor Ben. It was an experiment. Can we take someone with name brand recognition, leverage that name brand to free them of the requirements of having to sell tickets, of having to work, and they can focus only on boxing? And if we do that, can we create a pay-per-view star who's easy to sell? So you can't just pick anybody, right? Um... I don't know if Johnny Nelson's got a son, but Johnny Nelson's son, it's not the same thing because Johnny Nelson is Johnny Nelson and Johnny Nelson's a back foot fighter who was a world champion and you respect him for that, but he was no Nigel Benn. He was no Chris Eubank Jr. He was no Steve Collins, for example. He was Johnny Nelson and we love Johnny for that. And it's the same reason we're pretty excited about seeing what Prince Nassim's kid can do. Because Naz entertained us, just like Nigel did, just like Chris Eubank did, just like Ricky Hatton did. So as boxing fans, we say, has the apple fallen far from the tree? And in the case of Conor Ben, the apple's still in the bloody tree. That's how close it is to it. Like He's got so much of his dad in there without necessarily being his dad. The elements are there, but he's not his dad. Because remember... Nigel did it from a place of pure darkness, which meant that maybe he wasn't as dedicated to the craft as he should have been. And Connor has learned from that, and Connor is dedicated to the craft. And this is why we were able to see what we saw on Saturday. But back to this point, it became a matchroom experiment. Can we create our own star that no one can ever question and say, well, he might have done this over here or over there, or you signed him from this guy? No, Connor Ben is matchroom created. If you want to understand the matchroom model, Conor Ben is the prime example. He's the best exponent of that, even better than Joshua. Because Joshua had the Olympic gold. I'm not saying he wouldn't be world champion without that. What I am saying, and remember this, he wouldn't be the global star that he is without that Olympic gold medal. So, big tick in the box. It took us a long time to get here, but it always was going to take a long time to get here. But I'm happy we got to this point where we can say, okay, Conor Ben is is a real boxer. He's a real fighter. He's a guy that we're going to watch with interest. Whether it goes up, whether it goes down, we're going to watch him with interest. Big tick in the box. Big, like I said, I'm a massive Conor Ben fan. 
the problem with this whole thing is, yes, it validates the natural model, but it also validates some of the negative aspects of the natural model. We don't always want our fighters to be manufactured. We want to feel that somehow we helped create them. That's what fans love. When you're a boxing fan, that is what you love. You love the fact that you were there at the beginning and you rode the wave. And sometimes you feel with Matchroom, they force this down on you. Now, yes, Saturday night, Conor fights Sammy Vargas, Samuel Vargas, however you want to call him. And it's an impressive win. It's a hell of a win. It's, it's a win we didn't expect Conor to, to be able to pull off. Now, my question is, why, why would we say that? Because it probably reflects an, a lack of knowledge about Sammy Vargas versus a lack of knowledge about Conor Ben. Sammy Vargas, as people know, had a reputation for being a little bit fragile. That's why people selected him as an opponent. He was a guy that you could blast out of there. Even in his peak years, he was a guy that could get blasted out of there. But what Sammy Var Vargas was, was a guy that had a lot of traction on message boards and on Twitter, on social media, because people wanted him to be the next best thing out of Canada, right? So he had that traction, so he had name brand value. And what Sky and Matchroom normally do is they take that and they put it in a centrifuge and they just concentrate it till that name becomes a monster. And now we're saying Conor Ben slayed the monster. We didn't really. Yeah, it was an 80-something second demolition of Sammy Vargas. But what was that really? Who was Sammy Vargas at that point? And who could Sammy Vargas have beaten at that point? Could he have beaten a Chris Congo? Maybe, maybe not. Would Chris beat him? 60-40, uh, yes. But would Chris stop him in 80 seconds? No, but that's not Chris's style. Chris will break you down. Michael McKinson against Sammy Vargas? McKinson probably wins that. Is it an 80-second demolition job? No. Styles make fights. So you congratulate Conor. You say, fantastic, well done. Without question, there's no buts in this, by the way. I'm happy for him the Reebok endorsements, all the other outside gigs. This guy overcame the Portugal incident with O'Hara Davis. All of that stuff happened. And he's turned out to be a guy, look, and I go, I want to see him fight again. And then the other part of me says, I don't remember Chris Eubank Jr. getting the same credit for beating Arthur Abraham. If we're talking about guys who overcame gatekeepers and earned respect, Chris Eubank Jr. never earned that respect. The public never gave him that respect. Now, some people did, but it wasn't the way it was with Conor Ben. And Arthur Abraham sits far higher on the tree than Sammy Vargas. Far higher on the tree. You know, Arthur Abraham was a two-weight world champion, been in there with the best, literally. Almost impossible to stop. Yet, we'll talk about Sammy Vargas as if he's a, the second coming of Manny Pacquiao. And it's dangerous for Conor Ben because there's still a lot of work to do. You can't push a kid in the most competitive division, in a division where the people who hold the belts aren't Mayweather-type 12-round merchants. It's all inside the distance. You're getting hurt badly by these guys. You don't need to be rushing Connor into that maelstrom, I don't think. He's fine where he is for now. But that creates a problem. 
where, where they've put him now, he's in the firing line for guys like Virgil Ortiz. I'm not saying he doesn't beat them. What I'm saying is now you're in there with guys who are just like you. We have to remember all of these welterweights we can mark out as Brits and Connor hasn't fought any of them. He hasn't. Connor hasn't even established he's the best in this country. He's the biggest name at welterweight in this country by far. But for his own legacy, he must establish that he is the best in this division in this country. That's what we'd like to see. And it's good experience and it's good learning for him. Now, is it going to be on pay-per-view? Probably. I've said it for a while. The plan was always to transition Conor Ben into pay-per-view. And they did it with a really low-risk fight. They didn't even put him in harm's way. And they were able to get a performance that means he's now pay-per-view. And the other bit that worried me, when I, when I look back on that night, is how nakedly Sky and Matchroom have just borrowed from the WWE playbook. So no one has an interview post-fight anymore. Now you cut a promo. Now you might cut a face promo like Joshua normally does or a bit of a heel promo like Dillian White does. Connor kind of treads that middle ground. He's more of your Randy Orton. You, you can find reasons to love him. You can find reasons to hate him. But that's a promo. It may not be scripted, but it's a promo. It's a, I'm selling you what's coming next. That's why they mentioned Amir Khan. We don't want to see Conor Ben fight Amir Khan. I'd rather see Conor Ben fight Josh Kelly. Beat Josh Kelly, fight David Avanesian. Fight guys who still have it to do in the sport. Amir Khan, nah, Amir Khan's a British boxing great. He's achieved everything. And, and for anyone who's going to tweet me and say, no, he's not a British boxing great, I want you to think about this. This young man has known since he was an amateur that he has a suspect chin. And he still had the heart, the fire, the courage, and the bravery to box competitively as a professional. Not only that, but to have a style where he was like, I'm either taking you out or you're taking me out. And he was able to deliver beating, beatings. Now, remember when he beat Barrera and we said Barrera was washed up? Because I remember that. He never got the credit he deserved. Sometimes I just got to take a step back and go. Amir Khan was brave as hell. Like, let's not forget this when it comes to Amir Khan. Let's never forget this. Didn't he go from like Barrera to Ketelnik? From Ketelnik to Salita? From Salita, it might have been Malinaji next. And then... There's a, there's a McCloskey fight, there's a Zab Judah fight, there's a Maidana fight, there's a Danny Garcia fight, all in that mix, right? All of this by what? 25? 26? He had already done it by 25, 26. He'd given the British boxing fans what they wanted. And now you want to call out a guy who fought against Billy Dibb who sold his name against Terence Crawford. Amir Khan's not concerned with trying to prove himself as a boxer. He already knows how great he is. We want to see Conor Ben go up against the guys who also try and be great, 
who aspire to greatness. Let's, let's put him in with those guys and see how he fares. Not because I want him to lose, but because I want him to... I, I want him to have that legacy he deserves. Like, I want him to be another Ben. I don't want him to be Nigel's son. I want him to be another Ben. Another great Ben. That's what we want. Not a lot to ask. Now, what does that mean? It means he's got to fight someone where we're worried for him. We weren't worried with Sammy Vargas. It was just a question of how he would win, and he won spectacularly. But we now need to see him tested. There's a lot he does well. His jab's really good. You know, his combination punching is incredible. If he can sustain that for 12 rounds, he'll be the most entertaining fighter in this country. Yeah. Maybe Cash Farouk might complain, but you know what I mean. And, you know, I'm going to give Donald Smith his roses for some of the work he did with Connor because I think he helped Connor rebuild his confidence and he helped Connor fall in love with boxing again. And, you know, sometimes people don't get the credit they deserve, so I just want to tip my hat off to him for, for a job well done. And so I'm excited by what happens next with Connor, but I worry that Eddie will kind of drag us in that route that he normally does where he will try and sneak a title shot and he'll pray that Pacquiao vacates a belt of some description and he'll throw Connor Ben in there. That's the route I see. He won't put him in with Spence and he won't put him in with Crawford because there's no hope in winning those fights. And, you know, as brave as Connor is, he doesn't need to be sustaining a lot of that damage this early in his life. But I am, in, I am interested in seeing where it goes. You know, I'm disappointed that I'll probably have to pay £20 a time to watch him now. But it's the model and it's what, you know, it's what boxing's just grown to accept, I guess. But while you guys reflect, and I know you, some of you at home and some of you might be nursing hangovers or some of you might be chowing into your Just Eat or Deliveroo takeaway, just take a couple of bites, a sip, a swallow, whatever, and just contrast Conor Ben with Jerome Ennis. Same weight class, both sons of fighters, both from boxing families. And look at the different career trajectories they have. And nominally, these guys are meant to be at world level, at the same level if you believe someone like an Eddie Hearn. Jerome Ennis goes out on Saturday night and stops Sergei Lipnitz, who's still a live fighter, who's still a guy who aspires to win a title, still youthful, hasn't sustained a lot of damage. Makes it look easy, does what he wants in that ring, dominates. Shows us that as these guys start to get older and get some miles on them, Jerome Ennis is next up. In another era, he'd be a world champion already. It just so happens that two of the greatest welterweights of the last few years hold the belts. And an all-time legend, an all-time legend is still part of that mix too. So when we talk about Conor Ben being world-class, benchmark him against Jerome Ennis before you form any other opinion. Just have a look at Jerome Ennis. And I've been saying for about three or four years that this kid is special. Where Conor Ben is the perfect illustration of, of my, I think it was Martin Theobald who said it, of what happens when you allow someone to focus solely on boxing without the distractions of life. Jerome Ennis is what happens when you're born into the sport. And watching those two develop over the next five years will be a very interesting study in contrast. But I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, were they to ever fight each other? I think that would be fantastic. 
But just, I think, look at Jerome Ennis for a sense of perspective on what it is to be an absolute world-class talent. You know, but let's come back to the UK shores for now because that card was interesting. Now, I kept relatively quiet about the Shannon Courtney Ebony Bridges fight for a number of reasons. One, it's just not boxing as I know it. You know, it's, it, it's like I said earlier, it's manufactured and the fans are force fed this kind of fight. What saved this fight actually was they're of pretty similar abilities, and I don't think that was expected. I don't think Shannon Courtney would have taken that fight had she known Ebony Bridges was that good. I think she would have waited for Rachel Ball, which I think is an easier fight. So Ebony Bridges, and if you listen to the male proportion of this audience, you know she's anything from, I love her from the shoulders down, to I take all of it, to her boobs are fake, I can't respect that. Everything's been said about her, but no one's really spoken about her boxing ability. I think you have to now. You know, she's like most Australians. Most Australians are really basic boxers. There's something about Australia that lends itself to being nothing more than functional. As long as you can do the job competently, you don't need any bells and whistles, no flair. And Ebony Bridges came with that. She came, you know, give her her due. She's been in combat sports a long time. Her bodybuilding story obviously raises red flags to me around previous PED use and whether she still carries those benefits today. I think if you looked at her physique versus Shannon Courtney, you were looking at two completely different organisms. Now, I have no idea how big those implants are. Let's just say they're a combined 1,100 or 1,200 cc's. That's a lot of additional weight to be carrying. So that her lean body mass is absolutely insane in terms of the strength she must have because she bullied Shannon Courtney, particularly in those middle rounds. And I, I remember texting Martin and Andy and saying, I think you're going to see Shannon Courtney unravel here. And the problem with Ebony Bridges was she deviated from what had worked brilliantly. Forearm in Courtney's face, right uppercut, left hook, straight back into that. Push her around with the left hand, throw that right uppercut. And then she just tried to, to blast her out when before she'd been breaking down Shannon Courtney. And I think if Ebony Bridges had a better trainer and a better team around her, I don't necessarily mean, you know, duh, change your trainer. I mean, like, had she come up in like the UK system where there's better sparring, it's more competitive, the amateur scene here is thriving. I think she would have been a bit more sophisticated in the ring. And she came, I think she came close to causing an upset. But once she couldn't stick to the whole uppercut hook game plan, and she tried to keep it long and tried to have a shootout with Shannon Courtney, she let Shannon off the hook. And then Shannon kind of saw the fight home. I had it four all after eight. Shannon Courtney definitely won the ninth. The tenth could go either way. So a draw or... 96, 94 to Shannon Courtney, I would have been okay with. Does that warrant a rematch? Yes. Do I think Shannon Courtney would take a rematch? Nah. I think she proved all she needed to prove in that fight. I'd love to watch it again because I just think it happens the same way again. And why not? But there aren't that many people for Shannon Courtney to fight. So she might have to, you know, go around again, Rachel Ball, Ebony Bridges again. But there's the, the other Australian girl. Is it Sharon O'Connell? And now they're talking about her. She's a she like WBA ranked number one. Uh, does Shannon want that fight? Why not? 
this is what she's in the sport for. So I'm not going to be a guy that sits here waiting for Shannon Courtney to lose. It's not my style of thing. I just don't want to do that. You know, I want to encourage her and I want her to fulfill her potential. But I just want it to be a meaningful fight. And on Saturday, that's what she gave us. More by luck than design. But I'll take it where I can get it right now. So that fight contrasts beautifully with what happened in the Savannah Marshall fight. I think I'm just going to simplify it by saying Savannah Marshall is too good for everyone at middleweight and most at super middle. Franchon Cruz might give her trouble at super mid, but not for, my, not for that long, I don't think. Savannah's too tall, too lean. I'm going to throw it out there. I'd like to see Savannah fight Naomi Graham. So Naomi Graham's a heavyweight, hits the ring at 200 pounds. I'd like to see Savannah fight her. I don't think Savannah would lose. I think Savannah's got it in her to fight anyone. I don't think it would scare her. And I'd love to see that because I think that would be game-changing for female boxing. That would take Savannah Marshall ahead of Clarissa Shields. And that would build it up perfectly for the time that those two fight. Because that's the only fight we care about for Clarissa Shields. It's the only fight we care about for Savannah Marshall. And them dragging it out does nothing for us to appreciate the fight more. It's either going to happen or it's not. But I did like what she did. She's, she's got that kind of Huey Fury, loose and languid style, but definitely off the front foot, though. She's definitely looking to, to come and hurt you, which is good for female boxers. I think the more, the more stoppage artists there are there, the better the sport will be seen. But, you know, if you combine Savannah Marshall, Ebony Bridges, Shannon Courtney, they elevated female boxing in my eyes. They took it to another level. The same way Ellie Scottney does when she steps in there. They make more and more people believers. Long may it continue. Because getting hit in the face is never easy. I don't care if it's a man or a woman in front of you. It's never easy. So I'm going to do something that I don't do often enough. Maybe I should do more of. But let's slide on over to, to the States. And I think we saw a couple of heavyweights who seem to be heading in different directions. But they shouldn't be. So we got to see young Jared Big Baby Anderson. And he did his thing again. Another impressive win. And then we've got Effie Jagba, who was a 2016 Olympian and was still waiting for him to have his breakout win. You know, when you look at the other 2016 Olympians like Hergovic, uh, Yoka, Joe Joyce, for example, they all seem to have wins where we're like, okay, I can see why you're quite highly ranked. Whereas we're still waiting for that that kind of statement win from F.E.N. Jagbo. And we, we need to get it soon to work out if he is any good or not. You know, we, we're at that point now where we're trying to get excited by these heavyweights and it's getting harder and harder. So, like, you look at Jared Anderson. What's he, six foot four, about 17 stone? Is six four big enough for a heavyweight now? It doesn't seem that way to me. F.E.N. is a little bigger, maybe a little lighter, but... You know, we still haven't seen that. We've seen the, sort of the, the highlight reel knockouts, but we haven't seen that dominant performance against somebody we know and acknowledge to be a challenge. But another kid I'm looking forward to seeing progress and what the future holds is probably the kid Sonny Conta who boxed on Saturday as well. What is it about these American heavyweights? Is it just that Britain has such a, a density of decent heavyweights right now that you just progress quicker. Maybe some of these American guys need to come over here for some action. Because over there in America, it doesn't look like they develop. Like, you know, we've been waiting for Damani Rock to land for how many years now? God knows. 
And America hasn't really had a good heavyweight outside of Wilder for absolutely ages. And I don't understand why. And I hear people say it's the NBA, it's the NFL. To an extent, but once you commit to boxing, then you've got to be halfway decent with all the trainers you've got there, right? But I don't know. And you know, the training thing's interesting just because I had a call with, with John Palata. Uh, God, when was that? A couple of days ago. We are talking about training. And I know he's keen to fight David Adelaide for the Southern area. And I don't know if that's going to be made. I don't know if Frank's going to try and make that one happen. I think it'd be a good fight for both guys. Be a lot of fun, though. That's for absolute certain. But John, we're talking to John and we're talking about training and how he feels. It's like he said, it's like he's the happiest he's been since we worked together. And I was thinking about why some fighters succeed and some fighters fail. Because it ties into a conversation I had with one of the GB coaches who was talking about Sonny Edwards. Now, he knows me and Sonny have a problem, so he gave me his two pennies worth, thinking that I'd use it as ammunition, but actually it was food for thought. And I came to this conclusion that sometimes you work with someone, and as a trainer, it's your job to get to where they are, and it's, a be it's better that I use Sonny Edwards as an example from a, you know, from a boxing perspective. Sonny was close to unbeatable as an amateur. Yeah, the weight class doesn't have that many people in it. We can, you know, we can make fun of that. But whoever he faced, he outclassed massively. More impressively than his brother did. So he goes into GB and they, they, they label him a problem child. But actually, I don't think any coach in GB could get to where Sonny Edwards was in terms of how he saw boxing. I think sometimes you meet talent and they see a different ring. They see, they see boxing done a way that you can't even compute or process, so you have to get to where they are. And it's easy when you've trained someone from scratch, right? Brendan Ingle, prime example. Like, I never believe Emmanuel Stewart could get to where Naz was in order to make him better. Because that's what you have to do with fighters who are truly gifted. You have to get to where they are. You have to try and understand the ring through their eyes. You have to try and understand the fight process through their eyes. And then say, okay, but here's where you're kind of being inefficient. And we can tighten these things up that allow you to be even more effective at being you. And it's also pretty similar when you're, when you're a fighter with a trainer. You have to get to where your trainer is. So if I say to someone, I'm going to go and train with Peter Fury... I need to understand Peter Fury is a guy that says, if you're not insanely fit, I can't work with you. But there are other trainers who can work with me if I'm not insanely fit. If I don't like running, there are trainers for me. And sometimes I think when people say, yeah, just go to Shane or just go to Mark Tibbs or go to this trainer, go to Joe Gallagher, go to Jamie Moore, they don't understand those dynamics. <coughs> Excuse me. Can Jamie Moore get to where that other fighter is? Maybe, maybe not. Can Shane get to where another fighter is? Yes, I've seen Shane do it. So think about Shane McGuigan and David Hay. Shane doesn't know what David knows about boxing. Does probably, Shane probably doesn't even know what David knows about staying fit and being in shape and being strong. He didn't need to, but he had to get to where David was standards, experience, expectation. He had to be able to hang at that level and then add his value. Now, some trainers 
will just tell you to do it their way or the highway. And so the reason I brought all of this up was to say, like, <clears throat> I'd seen John, and I know what John's capable of. I think John's at his best when he's punching in combinations, when he's trying to dominate the center of the ring, and he's hurting you with combinations. Speed, timing, combinations are what John does best. And I watched trainer after trainer try and change that recipe. Not because they thought they were right. They just couldn't get to where he was in terms of his thinking. Whereas boxing-wise, I could. Where I couldn't get to John was in how he chooses to train his body. There's stuff that John does that intuitively feel off to me. But I know that to stop him doing that would throw him off his game. So sometimes you've got to, you know, you got to get to where he is, like I said. And then sometimes he's got to get to where you are. Like I'm a big believer in a lot of pace, a lot of pressure, combinations and stuff like that. And sometimes people need to remember that. So when you're saying that boxer X needs to change trainers, I will ask you the question, change to who and why? You have to be able to show this and say, well, this guy can work with guys who are like him. He can work with a maverick or he can work with a guy who's bread and butter. It's never as simple as get a name brand trainer, like, like I said before. Like, it's not like buying a, or buying a house or getting an estate agent. It's nothing like that. It's a very particular and delicate process that you're dealing with. Uh, boxing's been pretty flat, uh, so I'm trying to think of stuff that I can, I can touch on. The same fury in Joshua's imminent. Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. That's what I can say. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I get the fight that I wanted this summer. Fantastic. But like I, like I keep saying, no one seems that bullish about it. I'm just hearing, yeah, it's 100% going to get done. It's this, it's that. But there's no certainty. So Fury has said that by the end of today, something needs to be announced, which tells me that something will probably be announced. Would there be an injury swerve further down the line? Don't know. But let's just see what happens on that one. I just, yeah. You know, I'm more interested in this Prince Patel, Coogan Cassius interview that's going to drop at 7 p.m. So I haven't heard it yet. So by the time this goes out, I wouldn't have heard it. But I'll probably heard it by then. But I find it interesting because I put a tweet out today. And I said something on the lines of this Coogan Cassis Prince Patel interview is just evidence that no beef in boxing is serious. It's all, it's all just fucking, it's all just handbags, really. And I think Coogan caught feelings about that and said, what makes you say this isn't real? And I just responded back saying, if ever somebody, if ever somebody said to me, I will cave your head in. We've got problems for a long time. For no other reason than you've taken it to a place where I'm, I'm like, you're going to have to do what you've said you're going to do. If you're going to cave my head in, you need to cave my head in. Otherwise, don't say things like that. Because that's like the genie in the bottle. Once it's out, it's out. And am I friends with Coogan? No. Do I know Coogan to say hello to? Yeah. To have a quick conversation with? Yeah. But we're not friends. We're not enemies. I respect what he does. I think when you talk about a British, British Boxing Hall of Fame, Coogan Cassius is in there. In the same way that Rocky's in the Boxing Hall of Fame. They don't have to have had a fight, but they moved the landscape, which is what Coogan did. Coogan Cassius moved the landscape in British boxing. You've got to respect that. Secondly and most importantly, he put people on. He put Umar on. He put Wingy on. He's put all of these people on. He's given them a platform. He's given boxers a platform. 
So you have to respect Cassius. But me respecting him and his achievements in boxing doesn't mean I can't call him out for saying, listen, man, don't, don't take things to those sorts of situations because that's not who you are. Because he could never threaten to cave my head in. I'm not saying that to be a tough guy, but he could never threaten to cave my head in. I'm a grown man. How dare you? So yeah, it was a nice little back and forth there, man. I, I didn't want to get too deep into it because in those situations, what tends to happen is you get Twitter piling and everyone kind of jumps in and makes something more serious than it is. Whereas, to be honest, it's just a couple of tweets between me and Coogan. I mean, just, just shooting some shit between each other. It's nothing. Like, I'll see him the next time. It's not a big deal to me. But that's the problem with boxing. A lot of stuff isn't real, but fans interpret it as being real. It's a business. You think these boxers are going to mess up their money just to entertain you in the streets and all? Nah, it's ridiculous. You don't do that. That's why they're professional boxers. They understand that there's stuff they have to do to sell the fight and there's stuff they have to do to win the fight. And that's all that beef that you see. So when you hear intense beef and raw beef, Nah, none of it's really real. You know, everyone can sit around a table and have a beer. That's just the nature of the sport. You don't survive long in boxing by being an arsehole. You just don't. So, when you've got to that level, you must be half alright. But what else has been happening in boxing? Um, Chisora's camp is popping off nicely, man. They've got a lot of good sparring partners. You know, I had some, some dispatches coming out of there. Adami Darboy's looking good. But my worry is one of these guys is going to win a fight and be in line for a world title shot. How crazy is that? How absolutely crazy is that? We are the only sport where you can swerve any meaningful opponent or prospect and weasel your way into title contention. And maybe it does hint at, at Matchroom moving towards this Fury-Joshua fight because there's no question after the first fight this, the belts will be scattered just because you can't hold on to them for too long. And so is this a way of positioning your guys with every governing body so that a Matchroom guy fights for every one of those vacated belts? I really hope not because I'd like to see guys like Yoka, Hergovic, Joyce get their chance now. You know, these old dinosaurs, man, like, let them get their pay-per-view fights, but keep them out of the title picture. You know, Joshua's still young enough, Fury's still young enough, Wilder, kind of, still young enough. But let's see these young guns do their thing, Michael Hunter, Philip Hergovic, and the rest of them. Let's just see them, you know, let them have their time now. That's what I'd like to see. But I'm not overly enthused, man, because I've never been a Parker fan. I don't, I don't see what people like about Parker. Dad, he's tough, he's durable, Maori, uh, great, right? But there's nothing else there. You know, I wish Huey Fury had beaten him. I really, really do. Well, I watched someone tweet me go, he did beat him, he just got robbed. But I wish he had done, because I think that would have just been better for boxing, definitely from a British perspective. Oh, I'm running out of time, let me be quick now. Dan Aziz fights on April 17th. Nobody missed that fight. Dan Aziz is our guy. Dan Aziz represents what this podcast is about, man. We just claw ourselves up there and they give us setback after setback. They close door after door on us and we come back relentless and stronger. And the week after, we got the Black Golovkin. Maybe the scariest punch in the middleweight division. Him and Connor Hines, man. They need to have like a punch off. 
but he goes up against Phoenix Cash. It's not an easy fight, but Denzel's got that power. If he can, I think if he can put a dent in Felix, Felix Cash early, if he can hurt him repeatedly, sap his confidence, make it into a tougher fight, I think it's, it's his for the taking. I, I'm high on Denzel Bentley, but I'll support him regardless because you know he's shown me love and shown me support. So I need to actually I need to give him a call today to see how things are, make sure he's he's all nice and ready to to cause havoc. But no, that's all that's all we've got time for this week. I'll probably do another one at some point, maybe Friday. Um, by then we might even have a Fury Joshua announcement, so we can have some fun with that. But in the meantime, guys, take care and catch you on the other side. So I thought I'd done a really good episode. Actually, I thought it was okay. Um, not much to go on this weekend, to be honest with you. And then I realized that the Prince Patel interview was dropping at 7 o'clock, so I've only just caught it because I've come out of the gym. Uh, what do you say to that interview? I think it's one of those raw, honest, and naked interviews that you can only do when you reach a certain level of maturity. So I'll nail my colors to the mask. I've known Prince Patel a while. I'm a fan. I like him. I think he's a hell of a boxer. I think he's a compelling character. I also think he's got that sort of drive that you rarely see in a boxer. He is obsessed with winning and being good. Now, to a lot of people, if you don't believe in yourself, if you're not sure about your position, that can be problematic for you. And I can see why maybe some boxing gyms and some trainers don't want him in the gym. Because he's his own man. But he's also smart enough to know when to follow. So I listened to the interview and it goes all around the houses and he gives a fantastic defense of his career and it's worth listening to actually. Because he does. And what he does in defending his own career is he pokes a hole in the industry. He pokes a hole in these guys like Adam Smith and um, Matthew Macklin and these experts who, who build up these people who come over here as being monsters until Prince Patel fights and then they're bums. Right? So we've got this double standard. And that's why I say to boxing fans, define your benchmark fights. So for me, Prince Patel has to fight one of the Edwards brothers. I want to know how good he is. He should be fighting those guys. He's definitely a peer of Charlie Edwards. They're peers. They're, they're, they're all rivals in the amateurs. It's a shame Wally Din didn't do much in the pros. There's another rival. There are natural rivals for, for Prince Patel. And we need to see these guys. They need to face each other. And then he went on to the, I guess, the, the tensions between him and Coogan. And I gave Coogan a bad rap earlier for saying, you know, like, these beefs aren't serious. And I'm going to give him another rap again because when you look at what Prince Patel does in those interviews in the past, and even in this interview with his, <laughs> with his sort of interpolation of the tie, the tie and booth expression, Many people have said worse on IFL. Let me not say many people. There are boxers on IFL who have said worse to Coogan, who have said worse about opponents, who have said worse about things than Prince Patel has. And they've been allowed to slide because they do numbers. Prince Patel hasn't been afforded that same privilege. That's what I find uncomfortable, that he's being held to a different standard. If Coogan doesn't want to be abused by boxers, I get that. But hold everyone to that same standard. Don't let anyone take the piss out of you, Coogan. If you want people taking the piss out of your staff, by all means, be.
be consistent. You can't pick and choose and you can't try and bully someone in an interview by saying, I won't have you talking badly about a member of my staff. Well, do that with everybody. That's the issue I have. A lot of people, if you go back, when the UMA, when the UMA IFL, UMA tweets came out, even the ones that were verified that he admitted to, that he coughed to, how many boxers jumped on him, told Coogan to get rid of him, and if you didn't get rid of him, Coogan, we wouldn't do another interview with you. And Coogan's done interviews with all of those guys. And Prince Patel has to be the scapegoat. So I wasn't really comfortable with that. But there was an interesting discussion where Prince Patel said, why am I not on British TV? Why am I not part of Sky? Why am I not part of BT Sport? Because when you really break it down, Hearn would have a field day promoting Prince Patel. But clearly doesn't want to touch him. It can't be down to the fact that he's in a small weight class. Like, you've got Cal Yafai. You've got um, Chocolatito. You've got Estrada. I mean, you've got access to Strisaket. I mean, you've got, you've got availability. So I don't get what the issue is. And so I had this nagging sense of... I felt, for, I felt for Prince Patel because I could feel the injustice in his voice, but I could also feel the hurt and the regret that maybe he took a couple of wrong turns. But boxing is a sport that should be about redemption. You should be able to make your mistakes and you should take your kicking from the fans but come back stronger as he has done. And now someone has to give him a chance. And what saddens me about this sport is once that door's closed to you, they rarely ever open it up. Look at Isaac Dogbo. You're telling me Isaac Dogbo can't come to the UK fight at 126, why not? Why? Because those promoters have decided between themselves we're not gonna touch him and that's a shame. And it reminds people, this sport's not a democracy. You don't get what you deserve. You get what someone decides to give you, and that's not fair. But it is what the sport's all about. But I enjoyed it. I don't understand why Coogan did the interview. Apart from, let me get someone controversial on to bump the views up in what feels like it's going to be a quiet fight week, right? It's really just, what, Boo Boo Andrade, Liam Williams. And then it's Dan Aziz against Ricky Summers. Yes. And then the week after that is Denzel versus Felix Cash. It doesn't feel like there's very matchroom heavy content available. And IFL's generally matchroom leaning. I know I'm going to get pulled off for saying they're biased. I'm not saying they're biased, but they are matchroom leaning, you know, in the sense of the bulk of their content in terms of views is done by matchroom fighters, you know. That's maybe not down to Coogan, but it's just a consequence of doing business. So I don't understand why the interview happened. It, it didn't feel like they, they had resolved anything. And it felt more like a marriage of convenience. Like, you know, I wish Prince Patel had asked Coogan, what does Eddie say about me? That would be interesting. What does Frank say about me? But I'd love to see Prince Patel come back. I'd love to see Prince Patel make a real impact. Let's see how good he is. And if he's no good, let the fans say, well, we told you he was no good. But he has every right to do that on these shores because here is the land 
where he cut his teeth. He learned to box here. He learned about the sport here. I'm not saying every fan should get behind him, but we should all support his right to have an opportunity to find out how good he is in this country. But I do recommend the, the interview, I'm not going to lie. I think it's compelling. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, and I know people want to turn off, but I think you want to watch that because very often boxers lie and they pretend about where they're at spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever. They'll lie to you. They tell you what you want to hear. But he was pretty raw. And one of the things I enjoyed, actually, was the discussion on training. Now, if, you, if you've listened to this podcast and you've come this far, you'll see even before the interview, I was talking about trainers need to get to where a boxer is normally before a boxer gets to where they are. Now, I've seen Prince in the gym. I've seen him, I think he's done weighted pulls with 30 kilos. Someone pull me up on that if I'm wrong, but I think he's done that. Like, I can do him with, with the 40 kilo kettlebell, yeah, but yeah, that's, that's insane for someone of his size. He's worryingly strong. So when he was talking about he likes to do things in a scientific way, I kind of get it, but it's not necessarily scientific. He just wants you to show him the benefit that doing something is going to give him. And I believe every fight should challenge your trainer. Your trainer doesn't know everything. It's not possible. If, if a trainer tells you it's my way or the highway, what that means is they don't know what they're doing and chances are they're never going to grow anyway. It comes a, there comes a certain point in a trainer-fighter relationship where the dialogue is two-way and you're listening as much as you're talking. And I think it was good for Prince to highlight that, to say, look, I've been around a lot of these fish and chip trainers, I mean, bread and butter trainers, and when you try and talk to them about something different, I mean, they just go into meltdown. And that's why he's had to move trainers. But is there a trainer in this country that can get to where Prince Patel is physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually? I don't know. But he's too talented a kid for someone not to take their gamble on him, that's for sure. You know, sometimes you'll give him a clip around the ear and say, no, nah, you know, this time you're going to do as I need you to do. But... You know, he was, he was frank, he was honest, it was 30-something minutes long. Um, they had Robert Asagba, who I thought was also compelling. You know, he's, just, he's one of the guys that boxing seems to have forgotten in the lockdown, always has his gloves ready, so was surprised he wasn't on any of these shows. He deserved to be. But look, I wish them both the best of luck. I hope they, they come through, and big Marcus Williams as well. It's just... Boxing should just give people a chance. Let them have a chance. And if they don't make it, cool, we'll all move on. But let them have that chance. But now, for sure, I am definitely out because it is bedtime now. So thanks for listening. As always, please, if you enjoy the content, share with about three or four friends. Just make sure your boxing pals are better informed so they don't, they don't tweet crazy stuff and all that sort of thing. But you know, I always appreciate the support. And take care, guys.